Good afternoon from London. I want to welcome everyone to the LSE's online events platform. My name is Peter Trubowitz. I'm a professor in the International Relations Department and director of the U.S. Center at the LSE, which is hosting today's roundtable on the 2020 U.S. election. Well, here we are a couple days after the end of the presidential campaign that has produced the highest voter turnout uh, in a long time and leaving Americans and folks around the world on the edge of their seats. And it's not over. As of this hour, Joe Biden has amassed over 72 million votes or 50.4% of the popular vote and a lead in the all important electoral college of 253 to 214 votes. This counting continues in several battleground states, including Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, and Pennsylvania. Results are expected later today in two states that could put Biden over the top, Nevada and Arizona. Meanwhile, Donald Trump is charging voter fraud and already challenging the count in key sw swing states in the courts. Even if Biden does prevail, he will likely be, he will be the first president uh, in 32 years to take office without his party um, in charge of Congress. At the end of the day, America may have said that they've had enough of President Trump, but it's already clear that even if Biden wins, voters have not given the Democrats a green light to govern as they see fit. The Republicans will in all likelihood control the Senate to say nothing of the Democrats' lackluster performance down ballot at the state level. Many were hoping that this election would do something to clarify politics in the United States. I think if there's one thing it won't be remembered for, it is political clarity. The country remains deeply divided at a time when it is reeling from the pandemic and social unrest. Making sense of all of this is no easy feat, especially as it's unfolding as we meet here on the platform. Fortunately, we had the good sense at the U.S. Center to schedule in ahead of time a group of distinguished scholars who have written extensively about the American presidency, party politics, electoral trends, public policy, and more and who can help us, I think, begin to ask the, the right questions about the moment that we're in. Joining me on the panel today in alphabetical order are um, Professor Mina Bose, the Peter uh, S. Calico Chair in Presidential Studies at Hofstra University and the author of Shaping and Signaling Presidential Policy. Dr. David Smith, Senior Lecturer in American Politics and Foreign Policy at the University of Sydney, and the author of Religious Persecution and Political Order in the United States. Professor Jeffrey Toulis of the University of Texas at Austin and author of The Rhetorical Presidency and most recently Legacies of Losing in American Politics. And Dr. Linda Yu, Chair of the LSE Economic Diplomacy Commission, visiting professor at LSE Ideas, and author of The Great Economist, How Their Ideas Can Help Us Today. So welcome to all of you. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's really great to have you on the platform. I can assure you there are a lot of folks watching, 
who are eager to hear what you have to say. Um, before we get down to business, let me just say a few words about today's format. Um, to get us started, I've asked each of our um, panelists to take a few minutes to um, share some initial thoughts and reflections on where we are at this juncture in the election. Um, we've left plenty of time for audience questions, so please send your questions to us via the Q&A function on Zoom. Please be sure to include your name and affiliation so I can mention them when I put your questions um, to our panelists. Now, normally at this point, I would ask all of you in the audience to put your hands together to give our panelists a warm LSE welcome. And that of course is not possible today. So in lieu of applause, I really encourage you to pose questions to the panelists in the Q&A period, and I will do my level best to get in as many as possible. And with that, let me turn to one of our guests from across the pond, um, Professor Bose. Mina, good to have you with us. Uh, the platform is yours. Thank you so much, Peter, and uh, thank you for inviting me. It's delighted uh, delighted to be on uh, this roundtable with uh, uh, distinguished colleagues and uh, excited to see so many people who want to understand what just happened. And maybe I would just say, uh, just kind of slightly edit it to say, and what's happening now? <laughs> because the election is very much um, still in progress. Um, I I'll be brief. Uh, there are many topics, I think, for all of us to discuss. But uh, just a little kind of point of comparison. Um, in 2016, I found myself staying up, I think, until about 1.30 or so in the morning uh, when uh, after Pennsylvania was called and I was waiting to see if Hillary Clinton would uh, speak. And it, uh, it turned out that she wasn't going to. So at that point, I went to sleep. I thought 2020, all the predictions were on election day that uh, <laughs> it was going to be a quick evening. And yet I found myself staying up later because I wanted to hear the president speak. And so that was still about 2.30 in the morning. So something is happening in American politics. And let me try to uh, offer a few thoughts for us to discuss. The first issue, I think we as political scientists and um, as students of the American presidency and American politics have to contend with is polling. What happened? Um, there were a number of critiques of polling in 2016. I've spent a lot of time teaching this. My classes, we've spent time discussing it at Hofstra, which is where I teach. We started a poll last fall, was very excited about putting this together. And our poll concluded, I should say, in October that uh, Biden was favored to win by uh, 11 points. So we were in that double digit margin. Um, I'm beginning to think now I prefer archival research to uh, polling analysis. But uh, let me just say, I think we have to figure out uh, what, why are the polls off? And there is a margin of error, but certainly the double digit predictions or the averages, if you look at Real Clear Politics or 538, a number of the news websites, well, all had Biden uh, comfortably ahead by about you know seven to eight points, and then some of them were double digits. 
So we know from 2016 that there were undecided voters that some of the surveys didn't capture and that there was also a significant difference between non-college educated and college educated voters. The 2020 polls accounted for that. And we know that there weren't as many, there were very less than 5% of undecided voters. Um, we found, we did a poll in September and then one in October, very little shift in perspective um, in, the, in that uh, month. So there's something else that was missing. Was it election day turnout versus early voting and absentee turnout? Are there, uh, there were issues with the state by state polls as well? Are our samples insufficiently representative? representative? Uh, something there that we need to uh, understand. And I would say that um, polling is important and we need to understand the snapshot of where the public stands, not just on candidates, but also on policy issues. So um, I think this is still until all the votes are in and the election is decided, it's difficult to kind of make a, a definitive assessment. But without a doubt, um, we need to figure out the state of polling in American politics and why the uh, the narrowness of victory or the narrow margin, I should say at this point, since we don't know the results, why that's um, why that wasn't reflected in public opinion polls across the board. Second point I would just make federalism. I have spent more, I teach the American presidency and um, public policy and I have spent more time in the past month on the National Conference of State Legislatures website and on Ballotpedia to look at variations on absentee balloting rules, on uh, poll opening and closing times, on uh, election count, early voting rules, uh, now looking at rules on the Electoral College and faithless electors. The United States has 50 jurisdictions plus Washington DC that uh, cast votes in the presidential race that, uh, that determine presidential selection. And this is a complicated and lengthy process. Until 2000, we hadn't seen for the most part, it was the electoral college. I would say I spent half a class on this. It would uh, generally uh, strengthen or reinforce the popular vote results. Now that we've seen in 2000 and 2016, two elections where the popular vote and electoral college vote didn't match up, and a now a third election where um, certainly if the popular vote, if uh, former Vice President Biden wins, then we will see the popular vote and the electoral college vote match up, but it will be a narrow margin. Uh, if you look at the numbers with all of the states, including the ones where uh, there are ch legal challenges, I think the maximum that's uh, predicted uh, could be for uh, Biden would be 321. So that would be giving Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, North Carolina, Georgia, uh, and Arizona. So you, we were just doing this in class this morning. You can calculate, but it's 321. For President Trump, if he were to hold everything from 2016, so that would be 306, and win Nevada, it would be 312. 312 and 321 are by no means the mandates that we've kind of taught about with the way we traditionally discuss the Electoral College. This is an institution uh, that uh, in American politics now, I would say is certainly the legitimacy is very much being brought into question. And then the last point, Peter, I'm gonna, I know um, my, 
everyone has uh we have a number of uh uh comments to address here but i would just say there are questions now as we make the transition from elections to governance which is not happening yet but what do the election results tell us about what the american national agenda needs to be in 2021 i think obviously questions about the pandemic the economy um and then the kind of future american priorities on climate change race relations healthcare these are issues that need to be addressed and we see a nation that is uh by no means where there is by no means a consensus on any of these very difficult issues so with that i'll open i'll turn it over there we go so um david uh thank you mina that that's great that gets us started here um uh first of all david um I don't know, you deserve some kind of like a gold medal or gold star because it's an ungodly hour and you're up down there, uh, down under. Um, so what's when you look at what's going on, you've been following American politics and writing about it for a long time. What's the takeaway from down under just looking at it? Big picture kind of some thoughts. To me, the takeaway is the vast turnout in this election, which I think is in many ways as surprising as any other aspect of the result. The fact that more than 100 million people voted early and we're probably going to see numbers in the end. Uh, I saw one estimate which suggests Trump will probably end up with about 75 million votes, which would be 12 million more than he got last time. And Biden will end up with about 81 million votes. So we're talking about a huge level of enthusiasm for this election in the middle of a pandemic. And I think it says something, well, I think it says a lot about Trump as president. On the one hand, he has the ability to turn out his side like no one else. On the other hand, he has the ability to turn out the other side like no one else. And Obviously, the president is always central to US politics, but Trump has somehow been unusually central to American politics. Just looking at some data uh, from the um, MIT Center for uh, Civic Media a few weeks ago, normally presidents feature in about 10% of news stories in the US. Trump has featured in about 25% of news stories in the US throughout his presidency. He has absolutely dominated the media, dominated the attention of Americans. And party divisions and negative partisanship had really been growing in the US for about 25 years before Trump became president. But during Trump's presidency, it has increasingly become all about him. Uh, politics is defined in terms of being pro and anti-Trump. And feelings have just been running so high in the last four years, and especially this year. Uh, the kinds of protests that we saw in the wake of the killing of George Floyd, this was the biggest wave of protest mobilisation in the United States since the 1960s. And it wasn't the only wave of protest mobilisation that we saw this year. There were anti-lockdown protests there were numerous protests uh, before the election. There are protests happening after the election. There is just an incredible amount of mobilization going on in the US at the moment. 
And a lot of that really reflects what a divisive figure Trump is and the kinds of uh, feelings that he inspires on both sides. So no matter what the outcome is, I think that that's the kind of clear picture that we have of American politics. And I think that even if Trump loses, he will be the symbolic leader of the opposition. I think it's highly likely he would be running for the candidacy again in 2024, and you would have to say that he's the front runner at, uh, at this point. So even if he loses, um, he's not going anywhere. And I think in, in some sense, politics will continue to be about him, which is maybe not something that a lot of people want to hear, but uh, I think that that could be the case. <clears throat> you ready for me, Peter? Yeah, so Jeff, you and I have, um, well, we've known each other for a long time. You have spent a lot of time writing and blogging about the Trump presidency, American democracy, this campaign. I don't know, your thoughts like two days after election day, you know, kind of wherever we are. <laughs> My answer to the panel's question, what happened, is uh, we're experiencing a near-death experience for the American polity. Um, I actually think it's somewhat of a mistake to try to think about this in terms of elections as we normally talk about them after the fact. Uh, for example, we sometimes ask whether there's going to be a partisan realignment or some of the uh, points that Peter made, which are perfectly reasonable about what happens if you don't control the whole government, but have divided government. Well, that's fine. But what was at stake in this election was the very viability of uh, the constitutional order, the very sustenance of the American political experiment. And had Trump uh, won, uh, and it appears that he's not going to win, uh, it's over. It's, it's done. Uh, now, uh, uh, having possibly been removed from office, uh, uh, what a near-death experience means is that we're in some sort of uh, an, an uh, situation analogous to cancer. We don't know whether it's a long-term terminal cancer. Uh, we don't know whether it's treatable. Uh, but uh, we are a sick nation. Uh, think about this, that uh, Trump actually, whether he wins or loses, did better in many, many respects than he did against Hillary uh, Clinton. Uh, it was just pointed out by David, he got the most votes that any Republican in American history that's run for president has, has, has gotten. Uh, and he is obviously, um, you know, we, we talk about Hillary being defeated. She, was, uh, she lost by, you know, uh, a few votes in a few states. And he's uh, going to lose as well by a few votes in a few states. Uh, the exceptions being if he loses as expected in Arizona, that's a new development, or Georgia. But both of those really aren't explained by anything the Biden campaign did. That They're explained more by, in uh, Arizona's case, uh, McCain, Cindy McCain and the organization of a labor union down there for Latinos. And in Georgia's case, the uh, infrastructure <laughs> that Stacey uh, Abrams put together there. Uh, but but I, I mentioned that only as a footnote to the basic point that Trump did really, really well in this election, despite all his outrages, 
despite impeachment, despite COVID, despite a tanking economy, uh, uh, despite um, uh, uh, the trauma and uh, um, um, destruction of alliances around the world, despite cozying up with dictators without any discernible benefit uh, to the national interest, um, despite uh, all his outrages, despite all these behaviors, any one of which would have sunk any other candidate. I mean, Hillary arguably lost the election because James Comey uh, spoke out of turn. That happens every hour. Something equivalent to that happens every hour of the Trump presidency. And it not only uh, doesn't uh, weaken him, taken collectively, it somehow strengthens him. Uh, it, it numbs the polity in general to his behavior. And it uh, somehow provides some sort of fodder for those who enable him. So uh, that's, my, uh, uh, that's my basic uh, takeaway, that we're in a very, very, very seriously bad situation in the United States. Linda, so we're in the UK. Many stayed up, many stayed up into the wee hours Wednesday morning following the election returns and wondering in part what it meant for American democracy, as Jeff has suggested, but also wondering about what it meant for the United States internationally. And I think in, in a post-Brexit UK, what the heck it meant for the United Kingdom. So, you know, some thoughts, I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts. Thank you very much, Peter. Um, Yes, I think uh, like all of you, it's been a very sleepless uh, couple of nights. Um, and the next time somebody promises me we're going to know the result, I'm going to make them put money on it. Because I think this is, you know, just um, extraordinary. And I think that's sort of my first, um, you know, uh, comment, which is the United States as the, um, you know, the most important economy in the world, um, who wins this election does have a big impact on, um, I would say, certainly on the style, but also there will be uh, substantial differences in terms of the conduct of um, the United States on the world stage. Now, I think the style point has already been mentioned a few times, so I won't uh, belabor that, but I'll just um, maybe sum it up in a quote that I have taken from somebody else, which is, if President Biden wins, um, which it looks like um, we're headed to, although I should stress President Trump still has a narrow path to victory, uh, but I'm sure there we can talk. We will talk more about that. Um, mm -hmm. Should President uh, the presidency go to Joe Biden, um, then uh, the world has been made safer for cocktail parties. Um, the, you know, the kind of the style point. And I think it's actually a hugely important point, even though I'm making it in a slightly uh, facetious way, because you know a lot of the uh, the conduct of this election, from the record turnout that um, we've already discussed to, as you mentioned, Peter, the split uh, between the presidency and what's happened uh, you know, with the Republicans retaining the Senate and, of course, uh, the appointments to the Supreme Court, um, the record turnout has actually not led to one unified picture. It's actually quite a split picture. And I think that obviously is going to have implications for the conduct 
of policy, including uh, foreign policy. Although, as we all know, there's areas in which the United States president does have a substantial role in this area, even if they can't do as much, um, for instance, on domestic um, policy. So I think in terms of the United States' place in the world, um, you know, I think should President Trump win, um, I think we will get um, a lot more of, uh, you know, America first. And I think we will um, maybe a little bit, uh, you know, cocktail parties are slightly less safe. <laughs> but should President, uh, the presidency go to Joe Biden, I think the United States will have a more multilateral role on the world stage. Now, there's going to be a number of issues where the bipartisan uh, stance on U.S. policy, foreign policy, won't change. Uh, top of mind there is vis-a-vis -vis China. Um, I think the competitiveness between the world's two biggest economies, I think that is one of the issues in which um, we should expect uh, maybe a different style, but the substance will still be that of competition and uh, power and and that, I think, is going to continue regardless of the outcome um, of the election. I think for us here um, in the UK and thinking about uh, the role of the sort of uh, the UK in the 21st century global economy, you know, the, uh, the special relationship with the United States, you know, I think that um, is always a big topic of discussion. But I think I would just kind of quickly say, um, I think for a United States looking to build um, bridges. Um, I actually think uh, Europe, um, you know, will be, of course, uh, more of a priority under a Biden um, presidency. But I also would not discount a continuation of President Obama's Asia pivot, which of course um, Biden was in um, the Obama administration as vice president. So there was always this uh, kind of pincer movement as to where the United States saw its biggest markets, as well as its its allies, and I could expect that um, to continue. And I think there's a bit of nervousness um, in terms of the relationships um, that might need to be built, um, depending on how you know all of this plays out um, between um, uh, the UK and the US. And I think finally, where I do think we will see a big difference is in the United States playing more of a leadership role on multilateral issues. So. Um, climate change, uh, but not just that. If you look at the impasse at the top of selecting the next uh, head of the World Trade Organization, appointing appellate judges to the dispute settlement mechanism of the WTO, uh, the role of the World Health Organization, that does require um, a commitment to multilateralism, which I think we would see um, with the Biden presidency. I think there are issues with uh, defining that global role vis-a-vis uh, -vis the competition with China, but I think that will be a significant change for the rest of us as you have the United States who will still be concerned with the domestic impact of the global choices they make, but the attitude will be more um, open uh, to the United States, um, its more traditional role as a leader in the multilateral system. So I think I'll pause there. There's a lot more obviously to, to go through, Peter, um, but um, I think on that point, I hope I've given you a hopeful point <laughs> to hand back. So that's great, Linda. I think I, I want to come back to the international side um, in a minute. Let me just simply say that we've got about 700, we have more than 750 people on the 
platform ranging from Puerto Rico to India to Singapore, Italy, Sudan, the UK and, and the United States. Welcome everybody. Um, you know, boy, there's a lot on the table here. I, th I think I wanna, I was looking, um, you know, at this point I'm, I'm not completely confident in the exit polling uh, because the exit polling actually does not really fully reflect um, the nature of the vote. I mean, this is, you know, because it is so heavily, um, um, with so, such a large portion of the vote is, is mail-in. Nevertheless, um, I, I, I don't think that this will change this much, what, what I'm about to talk about with, um, with the, um, when the mail-ins are, if they're factored into this. There are some really interesting demographic divisions. And one of them that has really been, um, I, I think it's like solidified um, under the Trump presidency. It is really, you can see it very starkly in the, out, in, in, in the voting behavior here. I think if we can put up the third, one of the, it's, I think it's the, maybe the last slide, um, um, which is a breakdown of, I don't know if the technician can hear me. Well, it's a breakdown of um, the college educated versus non-college educated um, vote in the United States. Um, and right now, when you look at white non-college educated um, um, voters, 64% um, um, of them have, have gone to, um, to Donald Trump. You get a, a more or less like a 50-50 split when you're looking at um, white college educated voters. There's interesting things going on with African-American voters, also with Latino voters. This strikes me as one of the more, one of the really interesting developments um, and the Democratic Party uh, simply needs to find a way to reach out to what were traditionally Democratic voters, but have basically been lost um, by the party. And, you know, to Jeff's point, are attracted by many of the things that you know, the kind of uh, anti, what you're, you know, cl classifying, I think correctly, is kind of anti-democratic behavior does not really threaten these voters. They seem to be much more concerned about the agenda that they see that the Democratic Party is advancing. And, and one wonders, you know, even if Donald Trump leaves and is not running again in 2024, I mean, is this really where the Republican Party has gone and will be. I mean, we do hear people like Tom Cotton, you know, invoking um, kind of like the white working class voter as being kind of central to the Republican Party. And I, I guess the, the question is, is there um, any way for the Democratic Party to reach out to, to these voters and to uh, because it seems to be a core part of the polarization and the division that is that's going on in the U.S. right now. It's not really directed at anybody in particular. I don't know if somebody wants to pick it up. Maybe not. David does. Go ahead. 
Yeah, I think um, one of the interesting things that we've seen in this election is quite a stark difference between some of the electoral results and some of the policy uh, preferences expressed through other things that were on the ballot. Mm -hmm. So in Florida, for example, we saw Mm -hmm. a four-point win to President Trump but we also saw a uh, proposal passed to raise the minimum wage to $15. Um, In multiple states, we've seen proposals to legalise marijuana. Um, Then on the other side of the country in California, which is going to have a resounding Democratic majority, uh, we got the proposal 22 passed, which essentially allows uh, gig economy platforms not to treat their employees as employees, but as independent contractors, mm-hmm. which is something that could have ramifications for the whole country in terms of the level of precarity that it creates. I don't think the Democrats are going to be able to compete with this group until they have consistent policy conditions that sorry consistent policies that deal with the problem of precarity in every area from uh from unemployment to healthcare. uh while democrats don't actually have an answer to that i think that cultural issues are going to become are going to continue to be more and more important for that group yeah so thoughts about this yeah i'll pick up on david's point starting from his first remarks, because I think it's important to reemphasize the point he made that Trumpism lives on after Trump, even if he's uh, defeated. And he, as he's pointed out, maybe even Trump himself. Right. Uh, but, but either way, as you point out, Peter, Tom Cotton would pick up the mantle. Somebody is going to carry the Trump right. banner. And, and, and while I think it's true that the Democrats need to figure out a way to get to this large group of people that used to be Democrats. Part of the problem is that when you think about the Trump campaign, uh, first of all, the platform is the first in Republican history that doesn't exist. There's no platform. (laughs) Uh, The platform was whatever Trump wants. So then Trump's Trump's campaign policies of this campaign objectives became the Republican Party's platform. And it turned out that they weren't programmatic at all. They were grievances. And, um, you know, all, all, all of the stuff Trump does. Right. And so that sort of grievance politics appeals to this group. And it has had the effect of bringing out into the open in the United States uh, the latent racism that has been in our country uh, since the beginning. But has, uh, you know, for many, many years, one could say that one of the salutary effects of hypocrisy was the suppression of overt racism. It was always there, but people sort of felt embarrassed about it, um, embarrassed to express it. And Trump actually gave permission, in effect, to be openly racist. And we now have, you know, uh, sort of, uh, you know, neo-Nazi groups and Proud Boys and all these sorts of groups that are sort of licensed from the top. Uh, that's a that's a huge huge shift in American politics, which we thought of as somehow over time, uh, you know, bending the arc toward justice and all that, the way Obama would talk about. Yeah. This is a tremendous, uh, you know, uh, wake up call 
for what's really going on in the United States. And it poses a very, very significant problem because how does the Democratic Party connect the bread and butter issues that connected it to that big group that you're talking about, Peter, with the, uh, you know, the problem of racism and grievance politics and all that? Yeah. Could I just add, Peter, do we have a second? Um, Go ahead. Um, I just, just kind of picking up on uh, what uh, David and uh, Jeff said, you know, I think we're really at 2020 has become a crossroads election, which we said this about 2008, we said this about 2016, but a fundamental challenge in the United States today is that we can't agree on what the problems are, let alone even decide how to address them. And um, that applies to questions of race relations, healthcare, um, the government's role in economic assistance. And then probably most fundamentally, and I think the issue that I I know we'll get to, and it's been, it's unique to 2020 is the pandemic. Um, There are really two starkly uh, diametrically opposed, right, if you will, views presented from the two presidential candidates, you know, President Trump basically saying, let's move on, right? And that's been, that clearly has a large source of appeal in the country. And then Biden saying that we need to, right, we need to set these rules, we need to have that this is going to be a long haul. If we don't even have agreement on the extent of the problem that the pandemic brings, and this isn't unique to the United States, but you know, this is then addressing questions about healthcare reform or educational assistance, or how to address questions about police brutality, race relations, we're not, the United States is not in agreement on, um, on identifying what the problems are, let alone, even with the policy platforms, I agree with Jeff, but the democratic policy platform, while they have one, there are significant intra-party disputes that are going to have to be addressed. And so, and then, so of course, that's true within the Republican Party as well. So I just think that um, we're, I, I'm, I'm optimistic that we can address this, uh, that these problems can be addressed, but I'm not sure what that suggests for action in the near future. Can I also come in on this feature? I think a lot will be made um, in the analysis once this is um, all over, <laughs> whenever that might be, about Biden uh, winning Wisconsin and Michigan, uh, two of the Rust Belt states that were very important in Trump's victory four years ago. And I think there's going to be quite a lot of uh, discussion around whether or not that means the Democratic Party can appeal to the Rust state. But of course, Trump taking, I think, is Ohio and Iowa. Um, as well as, you know, others makes this, as I say, it's going to be an analysis and a discussion. And I think Nina's comments just triggered one of the exit polls that I saw, which was that a lot of voters for um, Biden cared about COVID. Now, of course, economics, my area, (laughs) you know, is always the economy stupid, but the pandemic has been such a big factor um, that one of the polls that I saw essentially um, split this as if you cared about the economy um, more, I guess, um, and you're worried about um, uh, Biden raising your taxes, um, then those were the voters for Trump. Those who uh, cared about the pandemic and COVID uh, voted um, for Biden. And I think that is, um, perhaps it's unique for this, to this year, but I think that is um, you know, something which is um, also worth dissecting in due course. And then just finally, you, know, you mentioned there, um, there's going to be some fairly interesting 
uh, analyses on uh, trends of voting, I'm sure, after this. Um, and of course, um, Asian Americans, um, a group that um, doesn't get as much publicity as, um, as others. Um, it, as well as the uh, Latino community, as well as the African American community, there's some very interesting splits within those communities and different drivers um, as to, um, you know, they are, I think, uh, for the Asian American community, which is less um, analyzed in 10 of the swing states, um, you know, the fact that um, their populations uh, might have made a difference, I think will also begin to point to um, some of the, um, I think the real structural changes in the U.S. electorate around issues that I just, I'm not sure um, that um, we have yet uh, fully to grasp. Um, but I will personally find it very interesting <laughs> to see whether or not this, you know, this uh, demographic, which doesn't get much coverage, but uh, tends to vote and um, turnout tends to be pretty good, um, might have had an effect in some of these um, swing states. Can I say a word more about COVID? Yes. I, I think COVID is really a distinct issue. You know, a lot of times when we're talking about Trump, he's a symptom of something. It's not just him. He's the result. But in COVID, all the problems that you see, and as uh, Amina or somebody rightly pointed out, the division, the surprising division in the way that people responded to it, um, uh, and the fact that for many it played such a little role in their assessment of, of who to vote for in the election, all of that is actually a result of Trump's own decisions. It's not, it wasn't a pre-existing division in American politics over how to deal with the pandemic. And I would even submit that had he chosen or he'd been able to, but he'd never had the experience really of governing before. But if he had actually stepped up and said, look, like a normal president, we've got to come together. Here's the public health crisis. Here's how we're going to handle it. Um, we've made a couple mistakes along the way, but we're fixing them and let the scientists talk each day and do just what normal presidents do. I actually think he would have won this election pretty handily because all of the people that were his so-called base would have voted for him anyway. And independents and others who really do care about COVID um, uh, would, you know, there's a rally around the flag effect, as you know, for presidents in crises, which he himself experienced his highest approval ratings were at the very beginning of the COVID uh, uh, crisis when he hadn't actually, you know, laid out his disruptive approach to it. Um, and so I actually think that, 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 that it's, an, it's evidence of a kind of distinctive effect of his own sort of arbitrary, capricious, dictatorial sort of personality that we got the, the COVID phenomena work play out in the United States the way it did. Or, or maybe, I, I mean, you know, I've thought about this too. I mean, or maybe, I mean, the instinctive uh, effort to define the issue in very kind of partisan terms. He he basically framed it as a partisan issue. And I mean, the guy's been doing that essentially since the beginning of his, um, uh, you know, his, his presidency. I mean, because it is so striking that this issue, the pandemic, which normally given the incompetent management, you would have expected a president to really take it in the neck um, electorally right, in right. a big way, whether it's a pandemic or the economy. And somehow it got reframed as where you stand, right. um, you know, kind of 
party in a big sense, like a kind of conception of America. And, um, and to some degree, he, he just, he, in some sense, he pulled that off. I mean, he, he is going to lose the popular vote. He's going to lose the popular vote by a larger margin than he did last time, it looks like. Um, and, and, and probably, if things go the way they're going, uh, you know, lose the presidency. But still, it's a lot closer than people would have thought if you had a referendum on your handling and your management of a crisis. You know, well, and right. But if he had actually, but what I'm trying to say is, if he'd actually attempted to handle it, yeah, even though uh, and handle it well enough that that it mitigated some deaths, but it was still a terrible, terrible crisis. Yeah. He, uh, it, it, like a wartime president, he would be given credit for that in a way, and wouldn't be punished in the way that you normally are punished for the economy tanking and all that. I so think that I think I think you're right that his framing it in partisan ways prevented him from being punished for his mismanagement of mm -hmm. it. But what I'm trying to suggest is had he attempted to manage it responsibly, he would have been rewarded heartily by that. I think he would have won the election. Yeah. Well, I, we, we don't disagree. So <laughs> I just, I, I people just, want to get in, though. And then I've got to open it up because it's okay. like, <laughs> but Mina, go ahead. I just wanted to say, I mean, I just say, because I agree with exactly with what Jeff said, and this was a lot of the articles in the spring were talking about a time for wartime, right? This was crisis leadership, wartime leadership, that this could unify, right? In some ways that there would be a unified effort in the country. And what's so fast, what's really interesting about that is when we think about the fact that we there was an impeachment trial in January, 2020. So we were started this year with impeachment, went to the pandemic, it looked like there was um, uh, an opportunity, right, for kind of this would have been unprecedented if, you know, and I guess would still happen that an impeached president would win re-election in a time of economic distress and, um, and this, you know, once in a century pandemic. But then the other point I would just say, though, is that uh, the president, although he's losing the popular vote, right, this... Uh, has a strong base of support. One Florida. I mean, look at Florida, right? One Florida more strongly than in 2016. Uh, Democrats have lost two House seats in Florida. This is, uh, it's not clear to me. And again, if you look at the vote in Nebraska that Joe Biden won, right, that won uh, the second district, if President Trump had won that, like he did in 2016, there would be a possibility of a 269-269 split. So I agree with Jeff that this kind of the wartime leadership strategy could have been a clear path to victory, but these are still narrow margins. And I think that uh, the president calculated that this was this would be sufficient to prevail. Okay, we're going to open it up to um, there's uh, we've got a lot of questions coming in. I haven't there's uh, oh there's there's eighty questions in the in the Q and A box. So. Um, <clears throat> Peter, just before we open it up to questions, can I just quickly address one thing that was on one of the other slides, which was about the Latino vote? Yeah, go ahead, David. Yeah, so those exit polls showing 35% uh, of the Latino vote going to Trump. Um, I mean, with the caveat that we can't entirely trust these exit polls, although they will get more reliable, sorry, 32%. They will get more reliable when um, adjustments are made according to results. So that 32% is an improvement from what 
Trump got last time, which was an improvement from what Mitt Romney had got the time before that, although it is something of a regression to historical norms. Uh, Latinos have never been an exclusively Democratic voting group. Uh, those of you from Texas will remember how much, how much of the Latino vote George W. Bush was able to get out. But I think this Latino improvement is significant. And one of my theories about why this has happened is there's a really growing evangelical Latino community in the United States. They're often stereotyped as Catholic, but in fact, evangelicals are the biggest growing segment of Latinos. In Florida, for example, uh, 30% of Latinos are Protestant and 10% of them are Pentecostal. Uh, Christians, which is a group that very, very strongly backs Donald Trump. And I think there's a real story here about Latino mobilization uh, within religious communities, especially within those um, evangelical and Pentecostal communities. I think that this is going to be a major factor in the Latino vote going forward. Uh, although also on the other side of politics, um, as has already been pointed out, if Biden wins Nevada and Arizona, it's going to be because of the mobilisation of right. Latino labour unions in those states. If he wins Pennsylvania and Georgia, it's going to be because of black mobilisation in those states. The reason he won Wisconsin and Michigan was because of mobilisation among African-American voters in Detroit and Milwaukee. So although uh, Trump has made gains with non-white voters, especially Latino voters, la uh, non uh, Latino and African-American voters are still absolutely central to any kind of prospects for democratic power. Okay, that's great. And I think we're going to be able to, you're going to be able to drill down even a little bit more on that. I'm going to take some questions here. Uh, this first one is from Ginny. Ginny, um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you three questions and we'll, I don't know, kind of sort them through the panel. You'll decide which ones you want to pick up. Ginny Hamilton Barnes asks, how can the U.S. consider itself a city upon a hill and a beacon of liberalism when its very electoral system, which is the crux of the democratic process, is so flawed and there's no movement to reform it? So a question, I think, about the Electoral College, the disparity with the electoral vote. Mina, it does go back to your opening comment and so forth. So maybe you could take the lead on this. A question from um, an older student, um, Joseph Bakuza asks, um, and this actually, in a sense, David, um, may be something that you could pick up since you just were referring to labor unions. Has the destruction of the union base over the past decade or two been a leading cause of the white uh, working voter drifting over to the Republican Party? So what's the connection between the erosion of labor in the United States? And this is, of course, a phenomenon across the OECD, but in the, in the United States and the growth of the Republican Party. Um, and a, and a question um, from, um, from Mark Hoffman, uh, who is a colleague in the International Relations Department. Um, and I, I'm going to frame this as for, um, for everyone here. Um, given Biden's natural bipartisan predisposition or disposition, 
Is there an opportunity here actually for the Republican Party, um, if Biden's elected, so kind of post-Trump, to the, the Republican Party to pivot away from Trump and Trumpism? And I think that the question here really goes to, Jeff, these are people that you know, the kind of Lincoln Project Republicans. Where do these folks go? You know, who do they align with? I mean, this speaks to the cleavage inside the party. Yes, Cindy McCain did a lot to, you know, may have delivered, helped deliver, um, you know, Arizona. But when it comes to kind of like the future of, of kind of governing in a Biden administration, I mean, is there is there room or uh, will these people come over to the Democratic Party? What happens to them? Are we just it's so polarized and Trump owns it so much that there's no home for them? So three different questions, one on labor unions and what's happened to them and the implications the implications for of America's electoral system internationally and the kind of the American brand and and what's happened to it. And then maybe to, to talk a little bit more about the possibilities, perhaps, for something different in the Republican Party, a different vision of the Republican Party than, let's say, Trump or Tom Cotton. Do you want me to start? Why don't you go ahead and start? Okay, that may, you're making the electoral college kind of easy in comparison to that last one. <laughs> but let me, um, you know, this is, I, I would say, first of all, um, it's an excellent question. And there is, there are several proposals, right, um, for changing the system of presidential selection. Probably the most well-known today is the National Popular Vote Compact, right, which would change, which would keep the electoral college but award each state's electoral college votes to the candidate who wins the national popular vote. Um, some 15 states have signed on to it uh, with the proviso that it would go into effect if the number of 270 were reached. I'm not going to go into all of those details at this point, but what I, what I will say is that, um, you know, again, and I, I said this in my opening remarks, that, um, you know, until 2000, we really didn't spend a lot of time discussing the electoral college. Um, I don't remember it, you know, spending a lot of time in my college classes, graduate school, in teaching it. Um, the last time there was a split before 2000 was 1888. Um, an election has not gone to the House of Representatives since 1824. Seems very unlikely this in 2020, unless there are faithless electors, right? Again, I don't think that's likely in 2020, but that is, but that is also a, a, um, an issue. I think when we look at the elect the electoral college, I think is an excellent illustration of the challenge of seeing whether an 18th century institution, what the framers really decided as a compromise among uh, between advocates for direct election of the president versus legislative selection, large states versus small states, a number of other questions about representation, and um, this gets into you know questions about um, how who was permitted to participate in the selection process initially. This institution has somehow endured, right? And there really is not, I think, a lot of clarity that the framers were clear had thought 
much past George Washington as far as what would happen. Um, and of course, we have the change of the 12th Amendment, the separate election for president and vice president. I guess what I would say here is this is a, there is a question as to whether the Electoral College can, is a suitable mechanism for electing the president in the 21st century. There's also a question of whether you can make that decision of institutional change in at a time where it is so clearly linked to results. And if your position is that it needs to be changed because of, right, which is reasonable because of this discrepancy, it's viewed very much, I think, has become another party issue. So the prospect for an institutional reform, I think, becomes part of a larger question of the structure of the American political system. And that makes reform and addressing this question of legitimacy even harder to, um, to figure out. Okay, hey, David and, and Linda, maybe on the, uh, Jeff, do you want to speak to this? I just, thought, I just thought I'd add something to Mina's okay. topic. So, because the questioner asked, how could it be a country committed to democracy would have this kind of archaic institution? And in addition to what Mina said about the prospects for changing it, the answer to the question is, for most of American history, first, it didn't work as originally designed. Uh, and it became the mechanism, the principal reason we have a two-party system in the United States rather than a multi-party system, and the principal reason those two parties for most of American history were relatively moderate and not extreme. Um, and then finally, it tended until recently to enhance the issue of legitimacy because people that would win a narrow popular vote would, would win a much wider electoral vote. And that may even be the case this time. So for all those reasons, mm. a lot of people thought that the Electoral College up until very recently, up until 2000, uh, and the things that Mean has been talking about that have come to her attention and all of our attention, until then, a lot of people thought, well, it was not only compatible with democracy, but it sort of helped the American style of democracy. Let's pick up the question. Um, I mean, we've got a lot of questions coming in. Maybe something um, on the on the labor issue, David or Linda. I mean, um, and kind of um, how the decline of labor, which began before Ronald Reagan in the United States, but certainly accelerated from the 1980s on, um, uh, you know, the extent to which that has had uh, explains the shift of kind of um, non-college educated voters moving to the Republican Party. And maybe, David, if we could bring in the extent to which that's the explanation or it is a set of cultural issues that, you know, is at work there. Linda, some thoughts on this? Um, I think that is part of the explanation. Uh, as you say, this has been going on for a very long time and it's really been accelerated since NAFTA. One of the things that the decline of unions has done in the United States is certainly to diminish an important part of the organisation of the Democratic Party uh, around white working class voters. Unions were never as central to the Democratic Party as they are to, say, the Labor Party in the UK or the Labor Party in Australia, but nonetheless, they were an important source of organisation and support for democratic candidates. And as they have got weaker, so that organisation has got weaker. 
I would say, though, that we are actually seeing um, some real flourishes at the moment of not just reunionization, but quite radical reunionization um, in some places around the country, in some sectors. It's, it's not going back to anything like uh, what it used to be, but in the same way that Trump has had this sort of mass mobilization and mass cultural effect on the United States, he's also had many, many backlash effects. And one of those things has been people realizing the importance of unions, just some of the kinds of union mobilizations we've seen during the Trump presidency uh, have included really dangerous teachers strikes um, in Oklahoma, dangerous in the sense not legally protected, but nonetheless, they happened and uh, they were effective. We've seen unionization in sectors that hasn't seen it before. Um, so we might be seeing a decline in traditional unions, although there is actually some reunionization going on. That can't compensate uh, for what's being lost. But I think people are realising the significance of that. Of course, when we talk about the decline of unions in the United States, we're not just talking about some kind of natural process, although certainly some of it is to do with uh, America's changing economic position in the world. It's also to do with laws that states have passed. Uh, So-called right-to-work laws, especially in the South and in the Midwest, have had a devastating effect on unions, and it's going to be difficult for unions to recover while those laws are in place. And there was a definite political strategy to that from conservatives. So, yes, I do think that the decline of unions has been important politically, but it's it's a two-way process in terms of how unions and politics have affected each other. If I could just um, quickly add the economics, I think, to that. I think the, the, the correlation be- behind um, the decline of unions is correlated with the loss of bargaining power, especially as it pertains to a lot of mid-skilled uh, well, you know, blue-collar manufacturing workers. It's actually one of the explanations for the hollowing out of the middle class, the stagnation of real median wages taking into account inflation that's been happening in the United States since the 1970s. Unionization is not the only factor, but it is a factor that um, has been a driver of this. And so, you know, that relationship to political parties, I think, is the other thing we'll have to layer on. So, I think for both parties, but, and I think really the trajectory has been, uh, has been different. So the Democratic Party had moved under um, President Bill Clinton. There's more of a move to the center. So the kind of moving to the center uh, means that um, essentially the, uh, the makeup of the Democratic Party began to look different. And I think because of that, you ended up beginning to see um, the, the edges of, of both parties, but also as we're talking about and um, working class voters, um, not really uh, moving with the center. In fact, they become more disaffected. And so some of the movement uh, towards uh, the Republican Party in the Rust Belt was still quite a surprise because traditionally those are Democratic voters. Mm-hmm. But there is this economic overlay of does a Democratic member Bill Clinton was the one who put through NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. Mm-hmm. You know, so have they embraced free trade, which a lot of voters associate as another factor in this stagnation? And it is a factor, 
I mean, but I should stress, it's not the main factor, just like unionization is not the main factor, but they're all factors. So the shift in the 90s to kind of what we in the UK would call the third way in the United States, the kind of the Bill Clinton shift towards free trade, I think all of that began to um, change at the Rust Belt and begin, and voters began to think of the Republicans, which by the way, is traditionally the free trade party, um, as the one that better represents their interests. So I think um, that is something that still needs to play out, not beyond this election. Let me, Jeff, I want to I want to double back to just on this, the bipartisanship question. And I want to actually reframe it a little bit or add to it. So the question is, is there anybody if, if Biden, if it's Biden and he reaches out to the center or tries to, is there anybody on the other side to meet him in the Republican Party? You know, but I, I think there's another side to this you and I have talked about this before, is if he moves in this direction, if he tries to move towards the center, and given that it's divided government, there's going to be strong imperatives to do it in a way, he's going to have problems within his own coalition, um, between the kind of progressive end of the party and the more moderate Democrats. And so what, I mean, you know, what does that mean? Does he Does he do that? Or does he steal a leaf from Donald Trump, and frankly, presidents before him, and rely on executive authority and discretion and basically not try to rule to the extent that he can, you know, uh, rely on legislative consent. Well, there's a couple of the layers to it. So a lot of it depends on what McConnell's willing to do. Yeah. If you're asking about it from Biden's perspective, he would very much be committed to a center-left agenda that could draw people from the Republicans to support selected things. That's what he would want. Earlier, you framed it about, you know, what about the Lincoln Project and these guys? Um, Their view is that a healthy country would have a a vibrant center-left party and a center-right party, and the Republican Party would be the center-right party, and that's where they would want to be. Right. Uh, they think that an unhealthy country is unhealthy if you have an extreme uh, party at either end, Bernie bros or, or, uh, or uh, Trumpists. But that the Trumpists uh, toward fascism is, is, the, is, is worse, if, if, if that were the choice. They were prepared to support Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders if they were nominated. They prefer uh, Biden. Uh, but they're, the, what's behind all that is they think that, that uh, the Republican Party needs to be burned down in order to be rebuilt. They want the current, they think that it's morally corrupt, the Republican Party, not financially corrupt, but yeah. that morally corrupt. And it needs to be destroyed and rebuilt as a principled center-right party that thinks of its uh, partisan adversaries as adversaries, not enemies, that's, uh, w- that are willing to forge deals for the different understandings of the common interest of the country uh, and all that. And so they are going to be supporting Biden 1,000%. And that means they're going to be supporting his attempts to make deals. And they're going to be supporting him if he says, I can't make a deal. We're going to have to go for some medical plan that you guys don't like, you know, uh, you know with my 
Pelosi coalition and all that sort of stuff. They are going. They're they're simply going to back Biden whatever he wants to do. Okay, look, we've got a um, we have a we have a string of questions that are about the international implications of um, the election. But of course, they and they're they're framed in in part. Um, they're factoring in um, domestic politics, and one of them comes from Yao Ming. We, I think that's how you pronounce the last name, um, um, that essentially um, asks this, if, if Biden wins, will America really become less internationalist? So how baked in is America first is kind of uh, trade nationalism, protectionism, um, a related question to this is what are the implications? There's a few people that have asked this. What are the implications of this election? And especially, I think people are saying if, if Biden is elected for geopolitics in um, East Asia and especially the US-China relationship, will it really make a difference? Or will Biden have to more or less toe maybe toning down the rhetoric, but follow a line relatively similar to, to Trump. Um, and, um, and then um, a final question, which in a sense addresses or brings us to the Europe side of the equation, is what does this mean for climate change? Of course, climate, it refers to the world, but I, the point of this question is, if Biden is elected, does the U.S. go back into Paris Climate Treaty? And I think kind of more generally, Linda, you picked some of this up in your opening comments. How much of an emphasis can we really expect a Biden presidency with, as, as Mina is suggesting, with if he will have very little of a mandate? How much can we really expect him to push the needle internationally on, on issues like climate? So three different questions. Uh, maybe, Linda, maybe you take the first bite of the apple. David, this is a, the China part is in your region. <laughs> so very broadly defined. Um, but really, uh, you know, all of you, any of you. Um, uh, but Linda, why don't we start with you? Thank you, Peter. Great questions. <laughs> um, love Elsie. I love these events. I mean, just Elsie is such great um, audiences. So thank you all for these. Um, will it really be the end uh, to America first? Uh, no. I think the uh, the degree of um, internal focus um, is going to remain. And you know, there's a lot. Um, there's a lot to talk about there. But let me just sort of summarize and say. The backlash against globalization that we see um, in many parts of the advanced economies um, is really pronounced in the United States because of the economic trends that I mentioned a moment ago. Four decades of stagnant real median wages um, and um, a sense that um, America has more open markets um, than, say, China. And, and this is very, I think this is the point really worth stressing is that the distributional impact of being open of trade and investment 
has not been addressed. Um, and it's very difficult to address, but it has not been addressed. So I think all of that sort of underpins um, a focus on how do you make trade fair and therefore putting America first. And I think it's a bit of a, you know, for economists, we, <laughs> you know, this is obviously a problem. Um, and, you know, the labels don't help <laughs> in many respects because, you know, balancing domestic distributional impact, how you address it through domestic policy and the way that you open up to trade, um, that is the shift, not just in the United States, but actually, um, as I say, it, this is a common across advanced economies. So I think for that reason, we'll continue to see increasingly domestic considerations play in. What I think what we would hope for is that they play in in a way that is more rules-based um, under a Biden administration and also uses domestic policy to address the inequalities, which are never solely about trade. It's always a part of it. So what are the other parts of it? How you deal with automation, how you deal with skills. Those are the kinds of domestic policy frameworks that are needed um, to address this. But this, I think, America first, or the focus domestically, is here to stay. Um, and I've already touched on uh, geopolitics in terms of U.S. and China. Under a Biden administration, the U.S.-China competition will continue. Um, and um, remember, the Asia pivot strategy um, was uh, the Obama administration pivoting to East Asia, but excluding China, the biggest economy in the region. And I still remember a Chinese policymaker saying to me um, that um, the vice president came and he told us all about their Asia pivot strategy. And the Chinese people in the room kind of sat there and said, do we need our own regional strategy? And I think, you know, so that I think is going to also um, remain, um, you know, with us. And I think the U.S. under Biden will continue to have a, a strong presence um, in East Asia, um, not just economically, but um, but otherwise. But maybe David, as a kind of honorary Asian, <laughs> Australians are, are in Asia, can pick that up. And I guess just very quickly on climate change in Paris, it'd be interesting to see how much of the Green New Deal, which is obviously coming from a, a part of the Democratic Party, um, begins to, uh, I think, gather um, some of the momentum from the states on this issue. And climate change, the climate crisis, is a massive issue for many in the Democratic um, Party. Now, in terms of how much of a mandate he has, how much of a priority this will be, um, I'll leave it to David and maybe Mina. Uh, yes, so, so in Australia, we're always in this very exciting position of being caught between our two biggest trade partners, uh, the US and China. And my feeling is that even if Biden wins, um, hostilities have been escalated to the point where it's not going to be easy to de-escalate them. And I mean, Trump's trade war was actually one of the most popular things that he did with Congress. He had quite a lot of support from Democrats in Congress for the trade war, even though it was very badly directed and very impulsive and actually represented a real narrowing of the conflict. I mean, under Obama, the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, as Linda mentioned, this was essentially a way of trying to build an Asian economic order linked to an Asian strategic order that would exclude and constrain China. Mm -hmm. It was a major vision um, that the US then dropped because of the domestic politics of the 2016 election 
where it was framed essentially by Trump and also by Sanders as this is just another bad trade deal that'll hurt American workers. But it, it had a major strategic purpose that went beyond that. What we instead see with Trump is this obsessive focus on trade deficits uh, driving that, that war. And Australia has been quite uncomfortable about this, or at least it was for a while, because of the idea that this was actually leaving the major underlying issues between China and the US uh, untouched. The, the major issue is not the trade deficit. Uh, there are all kinds of other issues, far more basic features of the, uh, of the international order. Those haven't been resolved at all. Those, those won't be resolved by any kind of uh, tokenistic, pseudo-favourable deal that comes out of uh, a trade war where China offers to buy $50 billion worth of US agricultural products. So um, I don't think that things are going to be easily de-escalated. It'll be interesting to see if uh, if Biden gets elected, if he tries to return to Obama's strategy. Uh, I think he'll find it very difficult because I think he'll find it very difficult to do anything, especially if uh, if Republicans control the Senate. I'll, I'll leave it to Mina now. Mina. Yeah. yeah, well, and actually just picking up on what you just said, David, and what Linda had said starting earlier, um, Linda, when you were talking about free trade in the 1990s, right, this was kind of a, a given in American politics, right, that free trade, the economics of public policy, that debate has shifted dramatically um, in the last five to six years. There was a little bit of that in the Bush 43 administration as well, right, with CAFTA and so forth. But in the 1990s, the Clinton administration's approach to governance, this third way, we talk about that, that kind of centrist leadership, that was very significant in foreign policy as well, as far as NAFTA, the big debate about uh, trade, most favored nation status with China, human rights versus economic interests. That whole, um, the kind of centrist consensus that we had in the 1990s, that um, that free trade was good, that everyone benefits overall, right? Um, the Ross Perot movement, the 1992, right? The kind of the job loss that was seen as kind of focusing on the immediate versus the longer term effects. That debate has changed significantly. And just, to, and I think so for, to bring it to Biden, Peter, which you had asked about what, what a President Biden would do in foreign policy, he will be very constrained by the fact that the trade debate has changed. The United States has been in, right, with the war in Afghanistan, right, now the longest war in US history, um, the war in Iraq. Um, and Biden, of course, is in the difficult position of in the Obama administration as vice president, he opposed, uh, the so-called the surge in Afghanistan, right, at the end of December 2009. But nevertheless, that was the administration policy. Um, I think that uh, Biden would face significant challenges or will face if he uh, if he does become president, if he uh, wins the election, uh, with negotiating these intra-party debates, but also these larger Democratic Party concerns about what the United States does in the world and what are the immediate effects and perhaps also with that, what the distribution of the results will be, right? Who benefits and how? And that gets to just uh, what David was saying about what Congress, right? How Congress will react, um, whether they will, uh, I mean, there's the issue of polarization and whether a divided Congress will make anything possible. But even beyond that, I would say there's an underlying that is really a debate about what 
um, whether a centrist policy is possible. And I think we're seeing more of the kind of the Green New Deal or just leave the environment alone and just let the economy go forward. We're dealing with extremes, not centrism. We see that in trade. We see that in foreign policy. We see that in questions about criminal justice. Again, when you look at the uh, criminal, the um, crime reform bill from the mid 1990s that um, Biden is facing so much criticism for. There is not a lot of room in American politics as we go into 2021 for centrist policymaking. Okay, we've got, um, uh, we've got about 10 minutes here and I still have a lot of questions. I think I'm gonna take, try to take another round of questions and we'll kind of wrap it up with the questions. Um, so one of the questions comes from um, Tim Durham, uh, LSE Health Economics Policy student. What's the likelihood of a third party developing that consists of moderate Republicans and centrist Democrats who are pro-business, pro-science, and pro-democracy. So is there any way to kind of unfreeze American politics <laughs> at this point in time? It's a great question. Um, and, um, there's several questions here that are about a different kind of geopolitics, the geopolitics inside the United States between rural small town America and big city, um, the big urban metropolitan areas um, and the divisions that we do see and the interesting developments, and I think they will, they will be reflected. They were reflected in 2018, and it seems from the exit polls already um, um, in uh, changes in in suburbia and where um, the suburbs, how the suburbs are um, aligning. And I, I think the the question might be here. To what extent is, you know, what we're seeing is a fair amount of polarization on different dimensions, but this on a geographic dimension, um, it's not north-south, and it's not exactly east-west right now, but in so many different ways, you see this kind of urban-rural cleavage um, in the United States, and it plays itself out on a lot of different policy issues. Um, but there seems like there might be some issues like healthcare, perhaps climate, one would think conceivably trade where they can be kind of bridged or brokered. Um, so thoughts on these questions. Anybody wanna take the third party possibility, David? Yeah, I'm not optimistic about third party prospects in the United States. I think the US system, just the way that it's institutionally structured, is particularly unforgiving to third parties where, I mean, in the US, it's, it's the most single member district system of them all. Essentially, everything is always a winner take all contest, uh, which leaves very little room for third parties to come in. That's not to say that parties can't change in the United States. There have been multiple occasions where one party has broken apart and a new party has arisen. 
that has always happened over issues of race in the US. That's what, uh, that is what brought the Whigs down. Um, it was issues of race that fundamentally changed the Democratic Party and ultimately changed the Republican Party as well. There certainly was speculation when Trump came along that the Republicans could have this major split essentially on an issue of, uh, of race, essentially on immigration, mm -hmm. Trump's very hardline stance uh, against immigration, which a lot of Republicans didn't agree with. Unfortunately, though, I would say the Republican Party has become Trump's party and it will be for the foreseeable future, even if he loses. So I don't see the Republican Party breaking apart and, uh, and giving rise to a new formation. There is some possibility of cooperative formations um, arising in Congress between uh, relatively liberal Republicans and very relatively conservative Democrats. But we have to note we're at a time in the US where Democrats and Republicans in Congress are basically further apart than ever. I think it was in 2012 that for the first time, the most right-wing Democrat in Congress was to the left of the most left-wing Republican. So I, even though this is the sort of um, thing that people who observe American politics would often like to see, um, I'm afraid I don't see it happening. Mm -hmm. Any, any thoughts on the party politics question here? Jeff, you... I just completely agree with that. Uh, there was a hope that the scenario that he described of the breakdown of a party and the formation of a new one rather than the, right. than the third party per se was viable. And that depended upon a crushing defeat of Trump. And so David's first point that Trump and Trumpism lives on uh, forecloses that possibility. And it also has this other effect, which is that you know, the, the, the theme of Biden's uh, administration is going to be a return to normalcy. Mm -hmm. A lot of that can be accomplished without any uh, public public policy debate. I mean, he, want, he has to rebuild a government that has been, you know, uh, uh, torched from the inside. I mean, all of these bureaucratic agencies are just destroyed. DOJ, Department of State, their, their, their institutional cultures are a mess. People have left, they have to be restaffed, but all that stuff can be done without having a big policy debate. When you get to the policy debate stuff, I think it's like you say, Peter, that it's going to end up being easier to do some of these things unilaterally than to, because, because of David's point, Trump isn't going away and he, he's going to mobilize people to uh, be harsher in their critiques of proposed policies than the policies would warrant, um, and that and that the and that Republicans previously may not have have even felt. Uh, and, yeah, that's great, Mina. And then Linda, maybe close it out. We've got just uh, we have three minutes before <laughs> the platform closes down, or whatever happens to the platform. <laughs> I'll be quick. They, um, let me just say that I, I agree entirely with the institute. We see here institutions, right? For, as far as the third party, um, the U. The American political system is designed for a majority party and an opponent. Winner take all 
plurality elections, very few runoffs, Georgia being one exception, but that is designed, makes it very difficult for third parties to play an active role in agenda setting and policymaking. They can be spoilers, they can certainly influence, think Green Party, think Libertarian Party, but they are generally not able, at least in national politics, to have um, a, uh, to have a seat at the uh, a political seat. As far as suburban versus urban and rural voters, we do see that shift. Urban voters tend to stay Democratic. Rural voters have been for Trump. Suburban voters went for Trump in 2016. In 2018, in the midterms, shifted. And then again, in 2020, appear to have shifted. This is the kind of the key block that I think both parties are trying to recruit. And we, I certainly see that in the Hofstra poll, which focuses on suburban voters. We see that that's certainly the big question going forward after this election. Um, is there a way to bridge that gap? I would say easier between urban and suburban suburban than urban suburban versus rural. That's okay, that's great. Linda. Uh, I know we're out of time. So I would just say um, the uh, COVID um, in terms of working from home, I think that's actually going to make the rural urban divide um, feature that, um, you know, that you asked about from a very good uh, question from a viewer and what Mina has described even more important. So the concentration urban areas of Democrats, even in Republican states, you mm -hmm. know, as the, as the, as working from home remains with us and you get more dispersion into the suburbs, how much purpling are we going to find? And I think that's going to be one of the key um, issues. And I guess, finally, I know we've all said this, but this election is, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating, it's taking too long, it's all these things, but I really hope that by the end of it, the process um, can be improved because this mail-in ballot, the kind of, you know, all the things that we've described, um, it just, to me, um, it's just kind of adding to, um, you know, one of the big challenges to democracy, which is, as um, I'm sure this is something that um, all of us feel, is that democracy is not an outcome only, it's actually a process. And I really do worry about um, everything which is, which is coming up. Um, but that being said, having events like this, I always feel slightly more informed by the end. So, so thank you, Peter, for this, and let's do more. And more hopeful, I think. So um, that's great. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's been a it's great pleasure to have the opportunity to to listen to um, our distinguished panelists today. I want to thank all of you for um, joining us, uh, Mina, David, Jeff, and. Linda, many thanks um, to you for taking time uh, to share your thoughts about the U.S. election. Uh, I'm sure that our viewers found it. Uh, I mean, we just had just tons of questions. I wish we could have gotten more. We got we got to over 100 questions coming in from all over the place. I mean, people were joining us from, uh, I saw at one point, from uh, China, France, Canada. David? Some folks from Australia, Norway. <laughs> so you have a fan club. You have a fan club everywhere. Um, uh, I found it very helpful and constructive, and I'm sure our viewers do uh, as well. So to everyone from all of us at the U.S. Center, uh, at the LSE, um, stay healthy, stay safe, and probably stay two meters apart. Take it easy, everybody. See you soon. Bye now. Thanks.